Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Ears for Dub Lab Radio. And today I'm very delighted to welcome my dear friend and most remarkable human being, the esteemed American physicist and radio astronomer and Nobel laureate, Robert Wilson, who together with Arno Penzias changed the world as we know it by happening upon the discovery of cosmic background radiation in 1964 while doing experiments with the Homdel Horn antenna. And this discovery of CMB was fundamental to proving the validity of the Big Bang Theory, for which Bob won the Nobel Prize in Physics in 1978. Bob and I first connected as I had just finished working with Bell Labs, uh, rebooting experiments in art and technology with my record Raw Space, and I was really curious to meet Bob and to visit the Horn Antenna. I'll share more about that later. But first, Bob, it's so wonderful to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. And how are you doing? I am very well. And I, you're very welcome. I'm happy to join you. Wonderful, Bob. Well, the idea of this show is really to explore the impact that music and sound and even silence has had on your life as an astronomer an engineer, and a physicist. Um, the title is taken from an Oliver Sacks quote about the power of music and how deep it really goes, uh, from our ability to connect with ourselves and one another through to unlocking neurological conditions when nothing else can. So the full quote is, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It is a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. And I'd just like to start by asking you, what does that mean to you? Well, music has been part of my life all, all along, and uh, I, I think I agree with it. I've never had a major depression to be lifted out of, but I've certainly had the experience of music setting a mood many times. And do you see the overlaps between your curiosity when it comes to sound and your appreciation of music, or were those two experiences always separate for you? Um, I guess they've been intertwined my whole life. <clears throat> As a kid, um, I guess radio was the thing, there was no TV, and I got interested in high-fidelity sound and, and started listening to, uh, to music and, in fact, constructed my own high-fidelity system. I used to go to uh, the Rice University Library and read audio engineering journals to, uh, to learn the latest about sound reproduction. And I think some of that interest in engineering led me into radio astronomy. Uh, not so much the sound, but the, the electrical engineering involved. But the sound, I guess, is what drove my initial interest in, in electronics. So in some ways, your interest in sound and even music 
um, led you into engineering, which then led you into astronomy, which is pretty amazing. Um, can you tell us more about building your own hi-fi system and what that entailed? Uh, well, at the same time, I was pick, fixing people's radios and television sets. You know, I was really interested in electronics, and I read about the, the latest electronics and uh, decided that, you know, I could build myself an amplifier. I, I knew where to buy the pieces, so I did it. And I wanted a fancier speaker than I could afford, so I bought the basic speaker unit and built a cabinet for it and put the whole thing together. I did use a commercial FM tuner because that seemed a little too complex for me to build. But it was fun reading about types of amplifiers and picking one and making it and have it work. And was that the only time you built something like that, or were you constantly experimenting? Um, I built this up, and I guess I changed some things for a while, and then I settled into just using it. Later, FM radio was becoming very important, and my car only had an AM radio in it. So I actually bought a cheap FM tuner and figured out how to put it in the car. It was actually under the front seat. And so for a number of years, I had probably the only car with an FM receiver in it around, certainly certainly of anyone that I knew. And would friends come and sit in your car and experience that? Yes. Mm -hmm. And we would go places and experience it. It sounds to me like you were inspired, you know, to go to great lengths to listen to music, building your own FM radios and radio antennas. Um, I know that was part of this exploration of sound also, but do you remember a song when you were growing up really imprinting? I remember my mother around the house singing a hymn in the garden. And he walks with me and he talks with me. I think she was very religious. Uh, and I remember her singing just to herself. And we used to listen to uh, music radio programs. I remember when uh, folk music started becoming available. I remember uh, Burl Eyes and then after... I guess a little later, uh, Pete Seeger, uh, one time when we were at Caltech, we drove to San Francisco to listen to the Kingston Trio at the Hungry Eye. And um, I think that genre of music sort of took over a lot of my interest from previously uh, purely classical things. So you were mainly listening to classical music when you were growing up? Yes. For example, when I was a student at Rice and we had Saturday morning classes, I would come home and after lunch, I would go up to my room and turn on the Metropolitan Opera and relax by 
listening to the Metropolitan Opera for however many, three hours or something, because the next morning I had to start studying again. And it was just my way of, of relaxing and disconnecting. Well, let's take a listen to Madame Butterfly performed live at the Met. That was Puccini's Madame Butterfly performed live at the Met. And I'm BT Wolf, and we're here with Robert Wilson uh, getting his orange juice for the years for Dub Lab Radio. So, Bob, is Madame Butterfly something that has stayed with you throughout your life? <laughs> yes. That's an excellent example. I don't know whether I've gotten more emotional in my later life, but the Metropolitan Opera has started having subtitles. And I find that when I listen to something like Madame Butterfly and get the words, because I don't speak Italian, as well as the music, you know, the music really sets a mood, but the words add to it. And when I see the whole thing, even though 
know, I've heard the story before. Maybe the story is even a little silly. It really sets a mood. And I have a very strong response to it. A very emotional response. And as a piece of music that you knew so well, um, you know, when you later saw that live, did that bring a different dimensionality to it? Yes, definitely. Uh, the live performance is certainly very different from listening on, on the radio. Very, very much more enveloping and I guess gets deeper into the head. And what would you do the other days when that opera wasn't available? I remember for a while I listened to sort of a strange program called Polka Party. I'm not sure what it was that got me that polka music gave me at that time, but I can remember for some period I used to listen to that in the afternoon. And so you grew up in Houston, Texas. Um, was your family musical in any way? Was music played in the house? Neither of my parents were performers at all, but we did listen to music on the radio, and I took piano lessons, uh, although I can't say I ever did so well. And in high school, I played trombone in the high school band. I enjoyed the uh, playing in the band, I don't remember so much enjoying the piano lessons. You know, you were talking about music in the head, and I realized that certain things just pop into my head at times. And sometimes there are words with it, but often it's just a bit of a tune. And then I puzzle and puzzle over what it was. And it's really hard to understand what brought it to the surface at that time. But there must be an amazing amount of music hidden away in my head. And I wish I understood what it was that brings them out. You're listening to Orange Juice for the Ears with B.T. Wolf, And today we're joined by the wonderful astronomer and physicist Robert Wilson. And we're hearing about the music that has been most impactful for Bob during his lifetime. There's another song I guess I would talk about that's been running in my, around in my head recently, and that is uh, Arlo Guthrie's City of New Orleans. Uh, when our first son was about 10, stereo had come around, but I was still hanging on to my high-fidelity systems. But for Christmas, we bought him a, a simple stereo receiver, and a turntable, and uh, one evening I put it together and put the Arlo Guthrie rec record on, and oh, and I bought him a pair of headphones. I didn't want the sound blasting all over the house. A pair of very nice Sennheiser headphones. And I put on City of New Orleans, and it just blew me away, and I got Betsy and had her listen to it, and a big smile. Uh, a combination of stereo and, I don't know, some of the poetry in it and the sounds. And in addition, remembering early train rides. When I was about 11 or 12, I started spending some summertime with an aunt and uncle in the Texas Panhandle. And I would get on the train in Houston 
go to to Dallas, change trains, and go to Goodnight, Texas, and meet my aunt and uncle. And I remember the trains traveling through parts of towns that I never otherwise saw. And Arlo really brought that out. Let's take a listen to Arlo Guthrie's City of New Orleans. And the sons of Pullman porters And the sons of engineers Write their father's magic carpets Made of steel That was Arlo Guthrie's City of New Orleans, chosen by Robert Wilson as one of his orange juice for the years. And I love that line, you know, the sons of engineers, because it makes me think of you buying that record or that song for your son, um, who, of course, was a son of an engineer. And it actually connected you back to your childhood uh, and traveling on those trains. And so it's amazing how music, you know, really gets passed on from our parents and, and we take something and we pass it on you know, in our own way. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, Bob, tell me, how did you end up at Bell Labs? Well, I was doing my thesis work at Caltech in the astronomy department, uh, doing radio astronomy. And Bell Labs wanted to uh, get into satellite communications. And one of their recruiters would come by about twice a year and talk to us. And, um, you know, the combination of my engineering and my knowledge of, you know, how radio telescopes and other antennas work seemed to fit very nicely with what they wanted to do in, in satellite work. So I accepted an invitation to go visit. I wasn't certain I wanted to, to be a, an academic all my life. In fact, I was pretty certain I didn't. And primarily the offer was being able to use the 20-foot horn reflector to do some astronomy experiments. Uh, And it was a unique sort of antenna. You've probably never seen anything else like it. But it had unique electrical properties, which would allow us to do things that regular radio astronomers weren't able to do. In addition... I visited several other projects at Bell Labs, and I realized if I ran out of ideas or interest in radio astronomy, there was lots of other engineering that I could enjoy at Bell Labs. Well, of course, as it turned out, the astronomy never lost interest. There first was the big excitement of finding the microwave background, and then sort of for the rest of my life, although not participating particularly, but seeing the advancement in technology and the advancement in theory leading to um, tremendous improvements in cosmology. Then a few years later, we took some other Bell Labs technology and discovered simple molecules in what we call molecular clouds. These are places where stars are formed, and the molecules allow us to probe those clouds. So even though I moved off into a different direction, Bell Labs really presented a a sort of unique opportunity with the special instrument and the uh, 
a large number of other things that I could be interested in. It's so wonderful to hear and it's so inspiring uh, just to think of what you know, that innate curiosity led you to achieve and you know, discovering the sonic imprint at the birth of our universe is pretty, <laughs> you can't really get much better than that. Um, and I really have to thank the horn antenna for bringing us together because um, it was through that that we did the broadcast of Rural Space, which was the first time the horn had been used to send music into space. And I'm so grateful that you took, you know, my whim sort of seriously because, you know, I'd been working with Bell Labs, um, creating this anti-stream from the quietest room on earth, the Bell Labs anechoic chamber for my record, Raw Space, and had obviously heard a lot about you and, and wanted to see the horn antenna. And we met for that first time. And it just struck me that if it could be used to receive, could it be used to transmit? And the fact that my album happened to be called Raw Space just seemed like the perfect opportunity. Um, and so, yeah, you went away, you figured it out, um, you made an update, and and we did that broadcast, and it's one of the highlights of my life. Um, it struck me as interesting that it hadn't really been thought to be used as a transmitter. I guess it was especially low noise, which doesn't make any difference as a transmitter. In fact, in the original echo experiment, the horn reflector was used as a receiver, and they bought a commercial, I think, 60-foot diameter antenna for the transmitter. And it was interesting listening to the raw space music. I had not thought of performing music in the anechoic chamber. Uh, the album actually has a rather rich sound. Uh, I, I would have thought it might have been sort of sparse, but it isn't. I've had a couple of other musical experiences in the other extreme. I'll describe one of them briefly. One summer, Arno and I went to a couple of conferences in Europe, and we ended up with a weekend between conferences, and we were to Lake Annecy in France, and happened to see that there was a concert at the Annecy Cathedral uh, the Saturday evening. And we went. And it was one of the remarkable things that has grabbed me over the years with music. It was a brass quintet playing in this huge cathedral with lots of reverberation. Sort of the opposite of the uh, anechoic chamber but uh, but very impressive and moving. I can see how, as an engineer, the sound aspect of the music is probably a very important factor, or at least something you notice. Um, yes, definitely. So it sounds like a very simple question to ask, but we obviously talked about Arlo Guthrie and um, Madame Butterfly as inspiration. Was there a, a record that you remember being particularly impactful? One of my favorite albums uh, was uh, Paul Simon's Graceland. I guess it came out shortly after our first visit to Africa. And uh, I really enjoyed the, uh, the way he uh, took the African 
music and uh, blended it with with his own. She said losing love is like a window in your heart. Everybody sees your blown apart. Everybody sees the window. That was Paul Simon's Graceland and that was chosen by Robert Wilson as the album that most impacted him uh, as he joins us for Orange Juice for the Years for Dub Lab. So, Bob, I know the listeners would love to hear what it was like to discover the 13 billion year old sound that was at the birth of our universe. And I realized that that didn't necessarily have an aha moment for you. That was something that. Um, in some ways you happened upon. Uh, but since then, have you had time to really bathe in the majesty of that discovery? Yes. Um, <clears throat> as you say, we first were trying to, we were thinking of it as a problem with our equipment rather than as a discovery. And even after the discovery, cosmology wasn't a very big science at the time. So... It seemed nice, and, you know, it appeared as, you know, on the front page of the New York Times, but then it sort of calmed down. But over the years, uh, a tremendous amount has come from this, and I feel very proud that we didn't uh, ignore this excess noise that we followed through, and uh, it was very satisfying that the the way things have developed, and uh, I'm sort of in awe of the amount of information which can be uh, derived from it. The, uh, the WMAP satellite and the Planck satellite have made a, a detailed picture of it, which in fact gives us detailed information about the universe at an age of about 380,000 years which is the earliest we actually have any real information. And uh, there may be developing uh, slight differences, but by and large, what we see there corresponds very well to what's seen in the present universe, uh, given what we think would have happened in the meantime in a Big Bang expansion. So, I guess put another way, taking those maps, uh, processing them into what we think was happening then, and doing computer simulations of what that should lead to in the current universe. And the two agree quite well. There may be an exception uh, coming up. Uh, I'm not sure whether it's real or not. But it has allowed the development of a, of a theory called... Big Bang with a, an inflation beginning, which uh, fits almost everything we're able to observe. And, uh, you know, it's been an amazing life. It's just fascinating. Um, do you think, you know, discovering something of that magnitude without realizing it at the time and then with time having a sense of just how... Um, fundamental to our understanding of the universe 
us as human beings, you know, everything that we know about where we are today. Um, do you think that in some ways there's some learning in that that you might pass on as wisdom? Let's see, the wisdom I would pass on to uh, young scientists would be that when something goes wrong with your experiment, pay attention. That the what you think is a problem may turn out to be the most important thing you'll ever find. You know, it's, it's really rather amazing to think of what has come from that, that little discovery. And, um, you know, makes me feel very good. I love that. And I think it really doesn't just apply to scientists. It applies to all of us. You know, what we may think of at the time as a mistake um, can end up being a great achievement, to put it mildly. So along with that wonderful wisdom, um, is there a song, a piece of music, a album that you feel you would also like to hand down, say to your your kids or their grandkids, you know, the future generations? I don't have a specific song or album. I think it's important to expose them to uh, a lot of the things that I have enjoyed. Uh, we took a couple of our grandchildren to a ballet production recently, which they'd never seen before. I'm thinking when Annabella gets a little older, I'd like to take her to uh, some opera, let her experience something that she hasn't experienced. She's very plugged into the current music scene, so there's nothing I can help her with there. But I think exposing her to a wider variety of music is very important. There's something happened to me recently at the National Academy meeting, National Academy of Sciences meeting this year, well, every year they have a garden party and a Sunday afternoon and then a concert. The concerts vary from string quartet to preservation hall jazz band. This year it was a guitarist and a violinist playing together. And it was really a wonderful combination. At the end, the audience was so enthusiastic, they played an encore and they did I Can't Help Falling in love with you. And listening to that reminded my, me of the days, of the very early days when I knew my wife, Betsy. You know, that was the sort of song that would be played at the end of a dance, and I would hold her closely. And uh, very fond memories. Wise men say only fools rush in, but I can't That was Elvis, I Can't Help Falling in Love With You. And that was Robert Wilson's um, choice as a song that really reminds him of the early days dancing with his wife. And it's interesting, Bob, because, you know, I think a lot of, the time we forget how deep music really goes you know neurologically music imprints on the brain deeper than any other human experience so we're really a musical species um 
And for me as a musician, you know, I'm thinking about music all the time. Music is very much in the foreground. But I think for a lot of people, whatever fields they're working in, music has always been this constant companion in some ways, you know, this part of your DNA. Um, and it's almost like it just takes hearing a song out of context and suddenly, you know, you can remember, um, it can connect you with all these these past feelings, emotions, and stories. There's one other musical moment I might mention. Several years ago at the Cloisters in New York, they had set up 40 speakers in a big reverberant room, and someone in the UK had recorded a Thomas Tallis motet uh, sung by a choir with a close microphone on each of the singers. And they made 40 soundtracks, and they played each of these into a different speaker. And one could walk around the room and hear the choir all around you. And sometimes, you know, the basses would pick up something over on a different part of the room. And it was just magical to be in, in the midst of that performance. As someone who has witnessed so many changes and cycles, um, if we're just thinking about music today, you know, what do you think we've gained and what do you think we've lost? Oh, that's a complicated question. Uh, certainly, electronics has made a big difference in the production of music. It allows you to muddle a bunch of things if you if you aren't careful. Listening to a symphony orchestra last night, uh, I was actually thinking, if electronics had come along, uh, you know, 300 years, 400 years earlier, would we have ever built up something as large and complex as a symphony orchestra? Or would the ability of amplification uh, let us to just amplify a few a few instruments and uh, make the same sort of sound. I love that example. And I think it really touches upon that idea of, you know, what are the skills that we need to retain and what are the tools that we can use? Yes, any new powerful tool can be used to advantage or you can use it poorly and, and really mess up in a worse way than you might otherwise. So now going back to your orange juice for the years and, you know, the music that has moved you, that has resonated with you throughout your life, do you find there's a, there's a similarity, there's a thread that connects all those choices? Um, is there a quality that they all have? Yes, I think most of the music, well, some of it has been simply designed to, to entertain, but much of it is to connect with people and to perhaps even make statements and uh, uh, 
change people's ideas. I guess I'm, I'm thinking there of folk music, uh, Pete Seeger's peace music. Um, music is a very effective way of, of putting your ideas forward. It grabs people in a number of ways and um, gets your ideas into their head. I agree. And I think to go back to the theme of the show, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It really has this duality and not just duality, but it's really so multifaceted and can do so many things. And many of them we still don't fully understand. It's still this great mystery to us, music and the brain, kind of like the universe is still a great mystery. Um, and it seems that the more we discover in both cases, the more we realize that it just goes deeper and deeper. Yes, why should people have evolved to have such a response to music? It seems strange that, um, you know, if you're trying to survive and not get eaten by a lion or something, and I, I, get, I understand why language is so important, but, but why does music flow from this? It's just amazing, the depth of our response. Absolutely. And I think it's fascinating in that way that music sits uniquely among the arts as something both completely abstract and profoundly emotional. So, Bob, before I close this wonderful conversation today um, for Dub Lab and my series Orange Juice for the Ears, I would just like to ask, what is it that you hope to leave behind with the work that you've done and that you're continuing to do? Well, I'm very pleased to be leaving behind uh, a considerable contribution to cosmology and the understanding of the universe. At this point, I would like to also leave behind uh, more of an understanding of the fragility of the earth and how we need to take care of it better. Uh, if we want future generations to enjoy uh, the earth in the same way that we have. I think there's a real danger that um, our activities will change the earth in, a, uh, in an irreversible way. And I would like to alert people to uh, that we need to change the way we we run our lives. I couldn't agree more. And I think that is the perfect sentiment to end this show on. Um, so thank you so much, Bob, for joining us and sharing your orange juice for the ears with the listeners at Dub Lab. Um, I'm BT Wolf, and you've been listening to me interviewing the wonderful physicist and astronomer Robert Wilson, who won the Nobel Prize for discovering cosmic background radiation, amongst many other things. So once again, thank you so much, Bob. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Beatty. <laughs>